Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning and Lyle's back. You're also with... <laughs> I'm Renee, that's who I am. I'm that's so glad you you're back, Lyle. <laughs> it is good to be back. It was good to get away and it's good yeah, to be back again. Absolutely. So how how were things? Did, uh, did, the, did the world fall apart while I wasn't here? No, not... That time, no. That's good. That's um, good to hear. I hear that. Uh, I hear that great things were happening. Uh, we had a good time. I was on with Darren, um, Pastor Darren Pratt, and he was amazing co-host. Yes. And um, and Liam was here to make sure everything ran smoothly. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> That's fantastic. So glad that uh, you were able to help us out with that. Um, and yeah, I was. I, I had. I just got to tell you, uh, and this is my thank. What, what I'm thankful for yes, this morning. I, I spent some time in the outback. Wow. And the outback right now, the area of the outback that I went to, I was a bit south of, south of Burke, <laughs> and they've had some rain. Now, I've never been in the outback after rain before, Ooh. but when it rains in the outback, I've often been told it is absolutely spectacular, and now I've seen it with my own eyes. And so if you can imagine red, like vivid red dirt – which is, you know, that's most of Australia, but vivid red red dirt with bright green. And I'm talking about bright green contrasting it and wildflowers just everywhere and billions of birds. Birds like you have never seen in your life before. Huge flocks of budgerigars, all kinds of different birds that you just, you just can't even imagine. It was just amazing. It was so spectacular. That's yeah. amazing. I've, was, ne- I've never seen, but I will, you know, after hearing your, that. Put it on your bucket list. It'll go on my bucket list. Yeah. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> Head to the Outback. That's right. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. And what is happening today in the world of positively different news? Well, the in the world of positively different news, we're going a bit local. And I, when I say local, I mean with Australia. And Australia Post is encouraging the use of traditional places, uh, place names, following a campaign led by Gor- Gor- Ooh, let me say this right, Gomeroy Woman. Um, so basically, Australians are about to get a lesson in First Nations place names, thanks to a campaign given a major boost in support by Australian Post. So um, Rachel McPhail um, had the idea to include traditional place names on Post items and began petitioning Australia Post literally only two months ago. Um, so she wanted to show pub- she wanted a public support uh she wanted to publicly support a campaign to include traditional place names in addresses and a general acknowledgement of country printed on all of Australia's post prepaid packaging. So um, in a timely move during NAIDOC week, uh, which NAIDOC, for those who don't know, stands for National Aboriginals, Aborigines and Island. Uh, oh, I'm just, I can't speak today. National <laughs> Aborigines and struggling Islands. Struggling there, Renee, struggling. <laughs> Day uh, Observance Committee. Um, uh, Australia Post publicly endorsed to help this idea to recognise um, Aboriginal country in their in their packaging. Which- so this would be interesting. I wonder if I, I wonder how I would go instead of putting, you know, uh, Western, right? Yeah. Which is a, obviously a very very British name. If I left that off altogether, found out what the 
um, Aboriginal name for that town was mm-hmm. and put that on there with, with, without, without having the – I wonder whether it would make it through. I, um, I think that would be kind of like saying, saying to send it to, I don't know, maybe Wall's End. And they're like, well, we know the place, but um, we need details. <laughs> so you come from uh, – you, your family comes from Samoa and Tonga. Yes. Do, they have a lot of, do they have a lot of mixed names in Samoa and Tonga, like some from like fully English names and some fully local names? You've got that kind of thing? Yeah. I think that's kind of worldwide these days, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of any country that's ever been colonised, which is most countries of the world, uh, yeah. one or two, would have a bit of a mixture of names. Yeah. It's kind of strange to travel to, you know, some of these like Asian countries and they've got a full-blown, you know, <laughs> British name. You're like, what? Yes. <laughs> what happened here? That's it. Yeah. So, so um, it's really cool that Australian Post is, is backing this up. Now, I'm from the West. I'm from Sydney's West. Right yes. now I'm at college. Haven't been to Sydney. But Sydney is Darug country. So that if I send a post home, which, you know, I could put the address down, New South Wales and add Darug country to the, the post. Oh, so you can add just sort of like the region rather than the, the specific location. Yes, yes. Oh, that's you cool. You can do that. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. yeah. Um, and so what Australia Post has done is that also, they've made this information, because it's not widely known by many people unless you go out and fig- find out what country you're on. Um, they've put information regarding traditional place names uh, on its website. So... Right, so there you go. I'm, I'm going to have to go and look it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to go and look up what my town's name is, what the traditional name for my town yeah. is. Yeah. And the thing is... I know what the traditional name for the suburb beside my suburb is. Okay, but but your one not Because it, it just has its traditional name. It's never had anything really? else but its traditional name. That's really cool. Okay. Ah, oh, that is really cool. Um, so... Uh, Basically, what Rachel is also pushing for is that so to include, you know, country name in the pre-packaging to acknowledge that in your addresses. But also she she says the third thing, which is going to be the biggest part, is to collate a comprehensive and accurate database of traditional place names that you can cross reference with postcodes, which has been verified by elders in all communities around Australia. That would be very challenging. A lot of work Massive to be done there. Massive work to do. What they need to do, you know, what they should do is add an extra line to the address line. Yes. Because then you've got, you know, dunk, dunk, and you can have traditional place name and away you go. Maybe maybe that's what they're working towards. Or add it on the same line. On the Just, sa- yeah. you know, this one, then this one. Yeah, yeah. And that would, you know. And event- if you know what it is, you, you put it in there. If you don't, then it's like, well, wow. we don't. You know, because a lot of them will have been lost over yes, time. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's why this that that task is the hardest with a lot of the loss of culture um, and just you know, I guess they've got they've got a lot of painful history. It's hard to know and to to pinpoint certain places and to so. So yeah, that that would be definitely hard. The logistics of that program is going to be huge because there's so many. There's also so many different countries or nations on this continent, Australia. There is, and you know, particularly challenging for places like Tasmania where the language is you, you know, has been lost. Yeah, and it's a tragedy. Or the languages, because I think there was uh, three major languages down there. Mm. Uh, and of course, growing up in Tasmania, you know, we learnt very little about Aboriginal history because so much of it's just been lost. Yeah. Yeah, it would be great to you know bring back as much as you can. Mm-hmm. I, there's there's a lot of debate as to how much you can actually bring back, and when they do bring things back, as to whether it's real or not. Mm. But it's 
it's a it's a, it's yes yeah, terrible tragedy for a country to lose such a significant part of its culture yeah yeah and i you know with that loss i think it's good that in these small ways we can bring bring back rec- yeah. bring back recognition to, to their culture um i think on this article I, I love it because according to australian post um Basically, they see the importance of this because before you, when you get your mail, I mean, when you're sending a package, it goes through so many hands and so many people sort it out, deal with it to get to its location. And so as this mail passes through all these people that we don't see, we don't know what happens to our mail. We just like take it to some magical place and it disappears and it appears where it's supposed to. <laughs> That's it. That's what happens with <laughs> mail. Right. You put it in a red box and walk away. <laughs> and, they, and walk away. But but it actually goes, there's a process behind it. Uh, it goes through a lot of hands and when people read that they're like oh you know i wonder where this is going oh i know where that country is it's it's i guess yeah it's it's a really good thing um so according to australian post there's a formal way to include traditional place names in the address when addressing a parcel or letter place the traditional name after the recipient's name but before the street address <laughs> um suburb or town so put your name put the country and then put the address oh there you go so there is a, a formal way of doing it they just they need to put a formal line in there. Yes. Yep. Another line. Um, there's also a business that's backing up this idea. Clothing the Gap is an, Austra- uh, is an Aboriginal-owned and led social enterprise, which already acknowledges of uh, country in its packaging. Um, but the director is so excited about this next step. And she said, um, we thought it was fantastic and an opportunity to acknowledge and celebrate the traditional custodians of this country in everyday practice. Um, and it's incredible to see so many different countries popping up in the addresses for people. Ah, fantastic. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, so we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about euthanasia this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what's taking place right now. Two couple of things in the news in relationship to euthanasia. First of all is that Queensland is defying the AMA, uh, Australian Medical Association. Okay. And that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. I mean, if you look at uh, the extreme lockdown laws that we've had in each state, and Queensland has been right up there with them, yeah. they have, when they've been you know, challenged on those extreme lockdown laws, they've been all like, no, this is what the science says, this is what the, uh, you know, the Australian Medical Association is recommending, and we have to make our decisions based on good science and not based on just emotion. Yeah. But in this particular case... What you've got is the AMA in Queensland has given a list of 11 top priorities to the Queensland government, areas in which they need funding. And what this is going to reveal is the true nature of euthanasia. So right at the top of that is palliative care. They're looking for funding of $277 million for palliative care. That's to look after people uh, who are at the end of their life. At the moment, all they are being given, instead of the two hundred and seventy-seven million they've asked for, is twenty-eight point five million. So, in essence, the Queensland government is not that worried, not that concerned, or not that caring about people who are at the end of their life. Mm. It's like, no, let's rush this euthanasia bill through quickly so that we don't have to spend this money on keeping. Oh people in palliative care, we can take their life instead. Mm. This is an economic issue. Yeah. This is the, economic, econ- the economics of death. And when you think about that, that's pretty cold. Yeah. 
you know, that tells me that this is not an issue of, you know, um, you know, well, let me, this is what the issue is. When you, when you use the AMA to back up your extreme lockdown and then you defy the AMA to bring through euthanasia, it shows that this is ideology-driven and it has nothing to do with science. Mm-hmm. It is 100% about ideology and this is the religion of secularism because ideology exists in the world of religion. Well, if it's a financial, it's a fine. It seems yeah. like it's a it's a financial gain kind of that's thing. That's it. But with lockdown, they didn't gain anything. No, that's right. Uh, lockdown, you know, and there's probably a whole bunch of different conversations we could have in relationship to lockdown. Yeah. The pros and the cons, and should it have been as crazy as it was, or should it not have been as crazy as it was? What advantages, what losses were there? Was this an electoral issue? You know. That's probably a different conversation, sure. um, but an interesting one nonetheless. Mm. But this one is ideologically based. Yeah. yeah. Um, so ba- basically, the, they're rushing this through because your life is not worth. I can imagine someone who's co- who's at the end of their life and they're feeling hopeless. But if they're given that option, you know, I feel like they would need someone to encourage them, <laughs> like. We should be in the we should be in the business of op- offering people hope. Yes, yeah, um, and not give in to despair. So you know, passing euthanasia as legislation is basically we give up. We're just going to give in to despair, mm. and that's an awful way to die. That's an awful way yeah. to go out. Yeah, um, and not only are people giving in to despair, they're giving in to family pressure, and a lot of people are going to say there's no family that would ever place pressure on their, you know, their, their, their other family member um, to end their life through euthanasia. But the reality is that simply by the law existing, every family is pr- placing that pressure exactly. uh, on their loved one regardless because their loved one is like, I am terminally ill. I am a burden to my family. The loved one is going to feel that pressure regardless of what the family says. Yeah. Just because the law exists. And that's a horrible, horrible kind of pressure mm. to place anyone under who is at the end of their life and is terminally ill. We should be providing palliative care rather than um, encouraging people to end their life and save us a bunch of money. Mm. In Tasmania, that just passed the upper house. Now, what's interesting, and I think what is instructive for all of us, is to take a look at countries where euthanasia has been around for a long time. Uh, so Belgium, Belgium and the Netherlands have had euthanasia, legalised euthanasia, the longest. How many? Do you know how many years? I don't off the top of my head, but it's been quite a number. I think it's like a couple of decades. Okay. So it's interesting to wow. see what has happened. And, you know, they passed these laws and yep. they've got all of these safeguards. Yeah. And with a very short space of time, once it's been passed, all the safeguards just vanish and it becomes kind of open slather. Um, you know, these are, uh, are modern, secular, first world countries that we can compare to Australia. And what it's, has it resulted in? Well, it's re- resulted in elder abuse. It's, it's resulted in misdiagnoses, in no. um, the elderly feeling like that they are a burden. There um, were 69 Belgians in 2018 who were euthanized who had dementia. 
um, one out of five doctors will will prescribe euthanasia for people who simply say they're tired of life. One out of uh, one of one out of every sixty people euthanized happen without that the, the euthanasia takes place without the patient making the request. You know, this is this is where this is where it ends up. You know, we can look at both of these countries. There's two countries that uh, have gone down this path, and we can see, okay, this is where it ends up. Once you open this door, it's a slippery slope. Let me give you a few examples. You've got a 25-year-old Belgian woman, you know, with a borderline personality disorder, uh, euthanized at the request of her parents. Um, the doctor said she did not suffer from depression in the psychiatric sense, but simply suffered from common depression, which is curable. Uh, you've got two children, uh, aged nine and eleven, euthanized in Belgium. One had a brain tumor, the other had cystic fibrosis. They were both given a life expectancy well into their forties. My father-in-law has cystic fibrosis. He's seventy-two. And he was supposed to be, you know, his, his life expectancy was, I think, 17 years ago now when he was, you know, supposed to die. Um, Two, you've got... That just makes me so mad. Two children. You've got a, a, a pair of twins. Oh, my that goodness. That were blind, no. born blind, yeah. and they found out that they would also go deaf at some point. And so they were euthanized because it's like, well, their life is not worth living. There's a lot of blind deaf people out there having great lives. You've got a 62-year-old Italian, Italian magistrate who was euthanized after being diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. Um, his autopsy revealed that he didn't have an illness at all. Uh, then you've got a 64-year-old lady who was euthanized because she was depressed. Her treating doctors weren't persuaded that her depression was incurable, but she found others to certify, certify that she was depressed and... Never even told the family. Family had no knowledge of it. You've got a Dutch doctor who sedated an elderly patient with dementia by drugging her coffee while the lethal drip was inserted, but the patient rallied and began to struggle and her family had to hold her down while she was being killed. This is where euthanasia goes. This is horrific stuff. You're a 44-year-old woman who was euthanized after botched plastic surgery. You've got a woman in her 20s who was euthanized for suffering, um, for, for mental suffering stemming from a history of child abuse. People get over these kind of things. You're a 41-year-old man who was euthanized because he was an alcoholic and he couldn't like deal with his alcoholism. Strong, stronger than <laughs> they can. Oh, I know. Okay. This is what happens when you open this door and people need to know what happens when you open this door because these bills are being promoted as bills that are all about compassion mm. and they end up in the worst possible place Ever and one day in the future, there are going to be generations who write about the history of our generation and look back on it with absolute condemnation in exactly the same way that we do today when we talk about the history of eugenics and those kinds of things, of those kind of practices of the past. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. This is our interview section, and for our guest interview today, we are very privileged to have Ruthie Batu joining us. Ruthie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, Ruthie, you're not from this country. Whereabouts are you from? 
I am from Papua New Guinea and I'm from a little province called uh, Rabaul. Okay, from Rabaul in Papua New Guinea. Yes. Wow, my grandfather was in Rabaul in Papua New Guinea way back in the Second World War. That was a bit of a hot spot over there back then. Now, um, Ruthie, we're going to hear a little bit about your story, but uh, I should mention to our listeners that Papua New Guinea is Australia's closest neighbour. In fact, we have an island that is part of Australia that's only four kilometres from Papua New Guinea. Did you know that we were that close to you? Yes. Ah, there you go. See, Papua New Guinea people know that, but most Australians don't. Uh, but we're really glad that you're uh, you're joining us today. Now, Ruthie, I want to hear a little bit about your story. What was it like growing up in Rabaul? And uh, was your family were they? Did you grow up in amongst a Christian family? I grew up in a Christian family. Actually, my mom before uh, she got married to my dad, she was in the Uniting Church, and before she even um, came into the church, she was baptized. She found Jesus and she came into the church. And I grew up in a home where my mom and dad were faithful in the church. My, they were my mentor, and they nurtured me very well in the church. So I grew up in a home where my dad was a, a layman. Mm-hmm, he worked mm-hmm. in the church as an elder, and he supported the church in his time as an elder. That's fantastic. Yeah. Was this a home where you had uh, family worship? Yes, we have family worship, and it's uh, part of our family. Even when I'm married today, when I go back home for holidays, uh-huh. The family worship is still there since the you know the time when I grew up as a child. It has never been. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Fantastic! That's awesome, Ruth. I'm so glad yeah. to uh, so glad to hear that. I love to hear stories of families that uh, that worship and pray and study the Bible together, and love to highlight those kind of stories. Now, Ruthie, um, tell me about Rabal. Uh, as a young person growing up, what was what was Rabal like compared to you know what you you see here in Australia right now? Rabaul was the most beautiful place in uh, Papua New Guinea, and mm-hmm. one of the things that made it so beautiful is the volcano. Oh. We have a volcano in Rabaul. Yes. But um, we also have different species of the, um, the frangipani. Oh, okay. And so it was called the Frangipani Town. Oh, really? You grew yes. up in the Frangipani Town. Yes. That's fantastic. Now, didn't that volcano, didn't that make the, uh, the town move at some stage? Yes, it erupted in uh, 1994 when I was a student at the college. Mm-hmm. But I come from an island closer to the volcano, but the volcano, uh, the volcano did not destroy my island. Okay, so your island's still there? My island is still there. Yes. Is your family still live there? No. The first eruption, during the first eruption, my family moved inland. That's a wise move, I think. Yes, <laughs> because they uh, thought of our future, my, yeah. my siblings and... Yeah. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have um, three, mm-hmm. uh, a brother, and sorry, a sister and two brothers. Yes. So yep. there are four of us four in of the you. family. Yep. Uh-huh. So three apart from you, three yes. plus you. Now you said you were uh, you were away studying at um, college. What was it that you were studying? Whereabouts were you studying? I was studying at Sonoma Adventist College, mm-hmm. in, uh, and that was when uh, in 1994. That was when the eruption took place. Yes. That was my final year in college. And what, what, what subject were you studying? Um, I was studying to be a teacher. Oh, a teacher, okay. Yes. Yeah. So after, uh, after you finished studies, did you, uh, you go into teaching school somewhere? Yes, I was supposed to teach in the, the only Adventist school in, in the town, but mm-hmm. because of the eruption, it destroyed the school. And so I was um, asked to teach in the demonstration school that belongs to the college. 
Okay. So the teachers training to be teachers in in the college, they go down to the school for demonstrations. Ah, yeah. yeah all right. See where they get to practice and they get to practice their, you know chalkboard skills and yeah. their presentation skills to the kids. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, fantastic. Coming back to Rabal, you say the uh, the school was destroyed. How much of the city or the town was destroyed when the volcano erupted? Most of the town was destroyed. Now, was it flattened or just covered by ash? Or? It was covered by ash, and still today you will see the you will not see any of the buildings because uh-huh. it's covered by the ash. Oh, how deep down are the buildings? It's quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'd have to yeah. go digging quite you a ways. You have to dig to, right down. That'd be good fun for archaeologists one day in the future. Yeah, like, yeah, let's go and find <laughs> the old city of Rabaul. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. because there's a lot of war relics in Rabaul. Yes, and so many tourists flocked into Rabaul to see the remains. Of, of course. The, the and and did, I, I guess a lot of those would have been buried by the. Um, Volcano, the, yes, the war relics. they were buried by them. Yeah, because my grandfather was um, in the Second World War, was fighting in Rabaul. Oh, so. really? Yeah. My grandmother was the carrier at that time. Is that so? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, those were hard times, very, very hard times. Of You, know, you read the history of um, fighting in Rabaul and... Uh, yeah, my grandfather was um, lucky to survive. He he did recount a couple of occasions when uh, he thought his time was up, but um, survive he did, and thus I am here today. And your your grandmother survived, so maybe they knew each other. I guess our so. grandparents <laughs> could have known each other. They could have yes. served side by side in the Second World War. We, we 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 will have to ask them one day. One day in heaven, we'll have to get them together. Yes. Like, did you guys know each other? Because we met, you know, in twenty eighteen at Faith FM, and and see if we can connect the dots. But um, okay, so when you go from you, you started out as as a school teacher, um, yes. and this is near Sonoma. Um, but now you're doing something quite different. What is your current role in ministry? I am now the children's ministry director for the conference. Central Papua Conference is the only conference in Papua New Guinea Union Mission, and it's stationed in the capital city of Port Moresby. Okay, so now for our listeners, I'm going to give you an explanation of the difference between what in the Adventist Church we call a conference and what we call a mission. So a conference is a large group of churches, as is a mission. The difference between the two is that a conference is self-supporting financially, whereas a mission is supported by, obviously, other conferences. And so we have quite a number of missions. How many missions do we have in Papua New Guinea? Ten. We've got ten missions and one conference. Yes. Uh, whereas in Australia, which is a more developed country, we have all conferences. We don't have any any missions here. But, um, yeah, congratulations. You were the first, the first conference to be formed in, uh, in, in Papua New Guinea. I remember when that happened and there was a great celebration that that was taking place over there. Now, you're the Children's Ministries Director. I, I want to ask this question. In a developing country like Papua New Guinea, how well accepted are women in ministry? It is well accepted. Okay. Yes, because sometimes we hear that some of the developing countries, are like yeah, they like you know, they're obviously they've they've got history of more um, you know a, a, a historical culture of, of of a more man based society, and I'm assuming that would be the same for Papua New Guinea because, in the past. Um, in the past, but now because of the you know religious has become part of. Uh, the people in Papua New Guinea, and mm-hmm. so we believe in gender equity. Ah, praise yes. God! Yeah. yeah, see, this is this is this is what yeah. Christianity brings. Exactly. Sometimes, sometimes we get criticised as Christians, like, oh, you know, Christians they go around the world and they mess everything up, and they shouldn't be doing missionary activities. But you know, Christianity has brought to Papua New Guinea gender equality. 
Yes. And, and, and people need to remember that the concept of gender equality actually began with Christianity. Exactly. And uh, this is a, is a principle in the Bible, and it's a principle that you find from uh, one end of the Bible uh, to the other. How long have you been in this particular role? I've been in the ministry for eight years, and this year is going to be my ninth year. Your ninth year. Yes. Wow. Now, one of the subjects that we often talk to Darren about, and I want to get um, your perspective, because Darren is, you know, Darren, um, and I've gone completely blank now, we often have Darren here on Faith FM um, doing a regular segment, but um, Darren Pratt, there we go, is coming back to my mind. Darren Pratt, uh, we often talk to him about some of the challenges that he faces here in Australia in relationship to um, child abuse. Do you face those same challenges in Papua New Guinea? We do. I think child abuse is a worldwide uh, challenge. Mm-hmm. And it happens in my um, the conference as well. But people don't come out to talk about it because of uh, they're scared to come out and talk about it because most of the abuse is taking place right in the family circle. Right. Yes. Right. And even in the church, it's not so much talked about, but... We've bra- broken down those barriers and yeah. we are going in to do more advocacy on mm-hmm. child abuse in the church. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This this is a, a massive problem. It's been in the news in Australia. Um, you know, we've had a royal commission into it. It, uh, you know, it's something that we've been covering here a fair bit on, on Faith FM and looking at ways that Australia is is tackling child abuse um, in, 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 in this country. Um and it's becoming much more spoken about here. This was also, you know, 30 years ago, something you didn't talk about, but now everybody talks about it. Um, how much progress, you know, if you were to go into a village um, in Papua New Guinea or a town or somewhere like that um, and go to a church, um, do you have the freedom to just stand up front and start talking to the people about child abuse? No, you have to find ways on how you can approach and talk to them about right. this issue. So mm-hmm. in the church... Um, the pastors find it uh, hard to talk about it. Mm, mm. But women, women are taking the lead because of the programs that we have for the women ministries and yes. children's ministry. Yep. So um, next month, there's going to be a, a program in August on the advocacy of uh, child abuse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when, it, when we have this kind of programs in the church, we try our best to at least come up with so many ideas and strategies and now we can reach out people and advocate more on child abuse. Do you have the legal protection in Papua New Guinea, the same as here in Australia, where, for instance, um, if, uh, if a person, you know, if, we, if a person is, um, is accused of child abuse, you know, an investigation will take place and um, if they're convicted, then a sentence will be carried out. Is that something that commonly happens in Papua New Guinea? We have that legal um, system in place, but when it comes to um, looking at child abuse cases, sometimes uh, we don't really get to uh, get the perpetrators mm, mm. to the ends of the police because uh, of the relationship that is involved. Like, if the person is a perpetrator and is one of our family members, like it will be an insult to. Uh, the family members, so some most of the cases are just covered and buried under. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was um, I was up in Papua New Guinea one time um, on the other side of um, the island and uh, doing meetings there, and there was a police officer who was assigned to me as um, for security, and he was telling me about some stories that had taken place just recently, within weeks of before I arrived there, and and uh, 
um, there was a, a man who was involved in the cargo cult who'd been abusing young girls and um, he's like, yeah, we went up there the other day and sorted it out. And it was, his story was um, like a story of summary justice. It was just justice handed out, done, finished and gone and they moved on. It was, yeah, a little bit different from, uh, from what we would do here in Australia but something that I think a lot of Australians would agree with when it comes to abusing children because, you know, they are, you know, they're the most vulnerable and they are who we need to be, definitely who we need to, to be protecting. Uh, one of the things that I see uh, that has improved a lot in the conference is that uh, people are now becoming educated on the approaches yes. and what they can do to help their families out of this abuse, and I'm, I'm thankful about this. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges we have is actually educating people exactly. on, uh, on, on, on being aware of it to start with, on yes. the, the, the damage that it causes, um, and, uh, and, and and educating them because, uh, you know, once people are educated, we have that challenge here in Australia. People are like, oh, yeah, this doesn't really happen. Well, actually it does, you know, and we have a massive, massive problem with that right now. And one of the things that EDRA is doing, because uh, we have a partnership with the government in mm-hmm. Port Moresby, I mean, in uh, our union, mm-hmm. and uh, the government is giving in money for us to use. And so what EDRA is doing is it creates a lot of trainings, for the church leaders based on how they can uh, uh, advocate more on child abuse Mm, mm. in the mission and in the conference. Yeah, absolutely. So we do it like every year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Big, big issue right there. Now, of course, children's ministry, I mean, that's a fairly serious subject, but uh, you must have a lot of happy experiences working with children. Yes, I have a lot of experiences apart from just looking at child abuse and other things. Yeah, but you must have like a lot of positive experience as well. Yes, I, mean, I have a lot yeah. of positive experiences. Like we have this uh, Shine project that we have every year. Mm-hmm. We do uh, fill in shoe boxes with spiritual items. And uh, so we call it uh, Worship Kids and we resource uh, children who are right in the rural, uh, remotest place of the conference. Mm-hmm. So children who, who don't have the chance of coming to a town they don't have access because of the road, mm-hmm. uh, geographical setting. And so when they open their little worship boxes, they find a Bible, a church hymnal, and uh, other kid stuff that they can use for worship. Well, that's fantastic, Ruthie. It has been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, and we wish you all the best as you head back to Papua New Guinea. Um, at this particular time, we do have to move on with our program. And uh, if you're ever back in, in Australia, come and see us here at Faith FM. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.